Leaders Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me is my co-host and mother, Caroline Kilborn. Hello, everyone. Beautiful weather where we are. I don't know if it is where you are, but I hope that uh, I hope you're having a good day wherever you are. So, Mom, who do we have with us today? Well, today we have a very interesting book. Uh, the author is Rachel Vale, and she's the author of many beloved picture books and novels. And this one is entitled "Sometimes I Feel Grumble Squinch," or "Sometimes and I Grumble big, Squinch." Sometimes I Grumble Squinch, and it's a big feelings book. And it is a big feelings book. It's really great. Okay, <laughs> um, she she's the author of many beloved picture books and novels, including "Rightly and Lefty," "Giver Willies at Night," "Sometimes I'm Boom Baloo." And Mama Rex and, and T series, Lucky and You, maybe. <laughs> Rachel loves Rachel loves talking with the kids, hearing their stories and reactions, discussing their hopes and worries. So she goes right to the source. She may get may get she gets many of her ideas from letters she receives. She lives in New York with her husband, New York City with her husband and her two sons. So I'm very very happy to have her on this program because I really enjoyed this book. I really did. And I'm not a kid. <laughs> Welcome to Writer's Voices, Rachel. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here with you both. <laughs> well, we are delighted to have you. So sometimes I grumble squinch um, explores the pressure children feel to be perfect all the time and makes them realize that sometimes you're going to have feelings that you maybe aren't so proud of. What inspired this book for you? Um, thanks. That's such a good way of of describing what the book is about. Yeah, I guess um, I had written a book called Sometimes I'm Bombaloo many years ago, and this is a companion book to that. That book also stars Katie Honors, the the main character of this book. And in that book, she Katie introduces herself saying, my name is Katie Honors, and I'm a really good kid. She's able to self-describe as really good, even though later in the book she goes on to have a temper tantrum. Now, I have so far in my life never had a temper tantrum. Only time will tell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, are you I'm sure about that? Up. Because you might not remember from when you were little. My mom, I was not a tantrum-y kid. Okay. And my older son, Zachary, um, was about three years old when I created the character of Bombaloo. And I actually made it up for him because he also was a pretty self-controlled, self-contained little guy. But I knew that there were big feelings roiling inside of him, even though he didn't, like most of his friends, he, he, he unlike most of his friends, he didn't have those tantrums. He didn't get overwhelmed by them. He didn't fall apart. I could see him holding in his feelings, and I wanted to create a, a way for him to discuss those big feelings. So I talked about my friend Bombaloo from when I was a kid um, who would do all the outrageous behaviors, and it gave Zachary this little smile, and we would talk about what he thought Bombaloo would do in various moments that were stressful. So he was able to sort of other the, the big feelings that he was having and talk about them as Bombaloo. And then one day on the playground with friends of his who were fighting and falling apart, 
and their mom, my good friend Lauren, had them sit separate from each other and calm themselves down. And Zachary said to her, they're acting a little bit like Bombaloo. At that point, all of our friends knew about Bombaloo and talked <laughs> about Bombaloo. And my friend Lauren said, yeah, sometimes they sometimes they turn into Bombaloo. But you know what? Secret, sometimes I'm Bombaloo, too. And that was a revelation to me after this year and a half of talking about Bombaloo. It wasn't that Bombaloo was some demon other, but sometimes I'm Bombaloo is, was the point. It's something in me. Sometimes I turn into Bombaloo, even though I normally am not. And so we left the playground and I went home and wrote that book. Well, that was a long time ago. Zachary's a full-grown adult by now <laughs> and, uh, and still hasn't had a tantrum. But again, only time will tell. Um, but over the years, Bombaloo has been shared with so many children, a whole generation of children have grown up talking about Bombaloo and thinking about Bombaloo. Psychologists use the book, and it's a way of naming and taming that feeling of becoming Bombaloo, which is very scary. But I've been asked over the years, like, when kids learn to handle their feelings of becoming Bombaloo, that's, that's the success, right? And, and it's not, to me, it's not about that toggle of exploding or imploding. The, the choice isn't you have to hold in all of your feelings and that's how you're successful. And I am much more of the grumble squinchy type. Um, <laughs> I realized that what I often do is I hold in my feelings. Now it's fine to make a choice to not explode your feelings out all over the place. But at some point you have to cope with your feelings. You have to think about it. You have to explore, why am I feeling this way? And um, and you don't have to only be a pleasure all, all the time. I'm a kid, who, I was a kid who enjoyed being a pleasure. And I love when my kids are a pleasure. I love when they're feeling happy and generous and kind, but that's not their job to just be a pleasure for me. They're not only entitled to happy and kind and generosity of spirit. They are, just by virtue of being humans, entitled to the full buffet of human emotion. And mm -hmm. it's sometimes hard as a parent when your child is feeling rage or sadness or loneliness or failure or frustration. But they they need to work through those feelings and they're entitled to those feelings and to still be loved. The idea that they're still, it's still okay. You're still okay. You're still a valued person. Even if you're feeling annoyed, even if you're feeling frustrated. And I think that was right. sort of that idea of what happens if you hold in those feelings, those bombalooey kind of feelings forever. Mm. And what happens if you let them out? What happens? <laughs> and what happens in this case is not so bad. Right. And sometimes I grumble squinch. You know, I understand. I think I was a pretty good kid, too. <laughs> I think mom. Well, we, have, we have a source. <laughs> we have the source. Right yeah. Here, yes, we, we do. <laughs> what is, did I ever throw a temper tantrum, mom? <laughs> I don't think so. 
I tell you, since, since you had interesting, <laughs> since you had a sister and three brothers, it's kind of hard to remember every single thing that happened. Well, <laughs> but, obviously, um, I was the best, <laughs> though, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you had to look after the younger ones. I remember that. So I, you had that a lot is of responsibility. True. Yeah. Are you the oldest? True. I'm the oldest girl, so I'm the second uh-huh. oldest of of five and the oldest girls. So yeah, I I did have a lot, a lot of responsibility. And I, and I do, I I kind of vaguely remember being a lot like the the character in this book in, in wanting to, Mm -hmm. um, to not cause problems for my mom, mostly because it seemed like she had her, her hands so full. Not only was I the, you know, the second of five, but of the, of the first three, I was, there were three of us in three years and I was in the middle. Right. So, and mm-hmm. it was, I had an older brother and older sister or an older brother and a younger brother who were both about a year and a half apart from me. And right. so I was definitely, you know, I think I always felt like, like felt sorry for my mom and didn't want to cause any problem. <laughs> it's so interesting that you say that. So it's such an under discussed part of childhood. I think there are so many of us who feel very protective of our moms um, and are aware of how much they're going through and want to save them more trouble. And I I don't think I've really read much about that. And I read a lot of children's books and a lot of books about child psychology. But, But your point is so important. I think we don't realize when people are so small, they can bang their heads on the doorknobs how much they're observing and how much they're feeling. And and I think, in like you, Katie Honors in Sometimes I Grumble Squinch, really sees that her parents are dealing with a, you know, a toddler, a lovely, rambunctious, adorable toddler in her younger brother, and she doesn't want to add to their burden. Yeah, yeah. And, and she knows that she is so appreciated for being such a pleasure, which is, true mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah i will say though like there are some um particularly little girls in my life who are mm-hmm. much less inclined to be to try and be a pleasure than i than i was at that age and mm-hmm. i really kind of honor that in them that mm-hmm. they seem to have come into this world being much more assertive about their own wants and needs and mm-hmm. not in it, not in an obnoxious way, but just, right. yeah, no, I'm not going to just go along all the time. Right. Well, I yeah. think we are learning about the value of even girls being able to assert their own boundaries yes. and their own needs. Yeah. Um, and that you, you can still be a really nice kid and, say no or say that's my chair and I would like to sit in it. Um, it doesn't make you not a nice kid. You can still self-define as a good, nice, pleasant, wonderful person, even if you have boundaries and defend them and you can defend them in a very nice yeah. way. But sometimes that means that we have to, as as kids or as people, we need to find somebody who is safe and loving, who will accept when we say to them, oh, I'm feeling really frustrated about this, or I'm feeling really angry 
and girls, even girls, are entitled to those feelings like rage and anger and ambition and jealousy and um, uh, all, all the and frustration. But boys too are put into boxes. They're allowed to feel rage, but they're often not allowed to feel loneliness or sadness or tenderness or worry. And when we genderize the roles, the, the feelings that we're entitled to, that limits us as humans. And when we, mm-hmm. um, and when we allow kids, regardless of gender, and even though they're small, to have these big feelings and share them with us, when we allow ourselves to be the safe space that they can come to, what a gift that is to children. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. So, Rachel, let's talk a little bit about how these last two plus years of uh, Mm -hmm. world pandemic have impacted children's emotions, their ability to get along with others. I mean, there's a lot of people looking around and thinking, you know, the kids are not okay. Right. And the parents are not okay. And the parents are not okay. <laughs> yeah. We're in the midst of a massive child mental health crisis, and parents are burned out, too, after two-plus years of distress and the pandemic and the political things going on. And all of this has caused a lot of stress in every aspect of our lives. Kids, kids haven't had the practice of daily social-emotional learning that comes from just ordinary interactions with peers and also with just neighbors and strangers in the supermarket. They haven't had the chance to stumble, fall, get back up and try again as kids their age or even a year younger or two years younger would normally have had at this point. So that's all very real and hard stuff that people are going through. I think that books are a great way, can be a great way for kids and even teens to get some of the emotional and empathic experience that they haven't been able to have. Like just reading with kids, even kids who are already fluent readers has tremendous proven and multi-level benefits in building their resilience. When you read a book that's in first person, you say, for instance, in the beginning of this book, my name is Katie Honors and I'm a really nice kid. The kid reading that or hearing that is probably not named Katie Honors, but it gives you the practice of thinking with the mind of another. And that's what reading does. Reading is just a practice in empathy as well as tremendously entertaining and fun and a cozy thing to do with somebody who loves you and all of that. But the idea of putting yourself into the mind and the life of another is a tremendous empathic exercise that you can do even alone in your home. Mm. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think you're getting that same thing out of, digital media or maybe no, maybe you are yeah. but, but there's I mean there is there is such a benefit in like listening to a blog uh, listening to a podcast or listening to a radio show or con- connecting over social media that the idea that we can still connect we are social species we need to connect with one another and we have to remind ourselves that we can do that um, even if we're not in person with one another and I think we've missed out and and we need to acknowledge that we've missed out on some birthday celebrations and some vacations and some 
theater experiences and parties that we would have liked to have had together. But we can still connect and we can still show up for one another, even if it's not in person. So there's there are pros and cons um, of the social media and the, the way that we have now. Thank goodness we have those ways now. We can connect. We can Zoom with one another. We can talk on the phone. We can text one another when my kids are away from me and they can just text me a funny thing that they read in the in a magazine or online on Twitter or whatever. It's it's a connection. It's a point of connection and you can still get that zing of endorphins, the good feelings inside you that it's a little I love you jolt. What I find sad is if I if I'm somewhere and I, I, I noticed a a couple of people sitting at a table or something mm-hmm. and they're each on their phones. They're not right. connecting with one another. And right. uh, to me, that's sad. Yeah. Although, <laughs> and, <laughs> although sometimes they're texting each other. <laughs> <laughs> they're trying to be secret from the other people. Other people. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Okay. Okay, my bad. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It is, it's, and it takes some practice. It's a muscle that we haven't necessarily been using in these past couple of years of being together and I think especially children haven't gotten that to exercise that social muscle and that can be a hard thing and I think a lot of parents are worrying about sending their kids back to school this fall when they haven't had that experience they haven't had they they don't know how to do it and so I think doing stuff like reading together is a good thing and with older kids you can do it with you can have a reading club a book club with your older child that um, I would suggest allowing your kid to choose the book, empowering your kid and listening to your kid, being uh, giving your kid the the driver's seat on something like choosing a book means mm-hmm. I, I'm interested in what you have to say, to say and what you're interested in. And giving that control to the child is huge. And then both read the book, even if it's not something that you're, you would have been interested in anyway, think about it. Your kid has to do geometry and volleyball and, um, you know, whatever they're studying in school, they might not be interested in all of it. You need to model, okay, I'm open to this thing that you're interested in and then discuss it. And discussing a book gives the child a way to talk about some really important things, talk about their values, talk about their worries, and their ideas and being able to sort of be present and listen instead of lead and teach um, is is a tremendous thing that a parent can do for a child. Yes, indeed. Yeah, this this, uh, uh, COVID thing has really upset the whole world. I mean, the whole world of education. I was was a high school teacher and I would really glad I'm not teaching anymore Mm. because I thought it would be extremely difficult to try to teach virtually and uh, and uh, I don't know I just I couldn't even get my head around it so I I, yeah teachers are under a tremendous stress too and I think that's a it's such a good point they've been working so hard and trying to you know create this whole new way of teaching on the fly and so what the, the amount that we can support the teachers and be patient and kind to the, mm-hmm. to the professionals who do this, 
um, and yeah. have been through quite a lot. Um, I think that's a really important point. It's very, it's, it's certainly not an easy thing. And, um, and, and they're doing a heroic job of it for the most part and librarians as well. I just yes. had coffee this morning with a college professor who mm-hmm. is, she said she's going to retire after this year because two mm-hmm. years of Zoom only classes just, mm-hmm. it just wore her out. And, yeah. and she oh, said that the, the kids were not learning in the same way. And this is even at, mm-hmm. in a college age. Right. Um, Right. They just, they just weren't. And it, I, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, remote work being so great and everything, but as a manager, I find it extremely challenging with my teams all remote. I, I it's very difficult to really mm. know what's going on and be able to do mm. the job properly. I, this, there's so many paradigms that have changed, and I wonder mm-hmm. if, as time goes on, if we will revert back to the way it was almost completely because because it, it was so because it was easier. <laughs> yeah, I think that there are hopefully, hopefully, I, you know, my kids make fun of me that it's it's impossible to teach me not to be optimistic about everything. Um, <laughs> but uh, I have such a flat learning curve. I always think things are going to work out. Um, but I, I'm hopeful that um, that we'll take what's best yes. of what we've figured out how to do and keep incorporating that. I will say, as someone who has worked from home by myself, not in an office for my entire career, um, all those people who said to me all these years, wow, you're so lucky. You get to work from home. You make your own hours. You can bring your computer and work in a cafe if you want, or you just, you, you can just wake up and work in your pajamas. You have the best situation. You all owe me an apology because now you know. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I have worked remotely part of the time my entire life too. And, mm-hmm. um, and it was always challenging. There were always um, difficult things about it. And mm-hmm. and when I have the choice, honestly, I'd rather be in the office. Interesting. Yeah. yeah the pros and cons. Yeah. And I think, you know, you make the best of the situation yeah. you find yourself in. Yes. And, yeah. and that's true of all of us, you know. And and the the thing is, even though it's been very hard and we have some grieving, grieving to do as a society and as individuals, as families, as communities, because we've lost people and we've lost time. Um, that's all very real. And it's important to do that emotional work. But I think we also have to realize, you know, there are we're we're still um, building a society and we still can. We still can have uh, show each other love when we need to be apart. Like if you have to isolate, you have to quarantine. Um, there are ways to still show love. I will say, you know, it's not the easier kind of love. But as parents, I think we can all think of times when the easy love is, oh, that's fun. When your toddler just embraces you and kisses you like the, the toddler brother wants to in in sometimes I grumble squinch just he's so full of love he wants to hug and kiss his older sister with his buttery face and hands all the time um 
that's a that's an easy kind of love when you see a, a beautiful toddler just doing like that. The harder kind of love, I think, is when a parent has to say no to a child yes. because no is the right answer, and you know it's going to cause trouble, but you know that it's the right answer, or even dropping off your child at kindergarten or at college and putting a smile on your face and being like, have a great day, have a great time, it's all going to be okay, and not crying until you get home and you're in the shower and you can have your moment or turn <laughs> to your friend, but not put that on your child. That to me, that's the harder kind of love. And I think that during this pandemic, we've all had to learn to appreciate that harder kind of love. When I couldn't be with my parents um, on holidays because we had to keep one another safe, that was really heartbreaking, really hard. Um, but it was out of love. Yeah, absolutely. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Rachel Vale, author of Sometimes I Grumble Squinch, which is a beautifully illustrated picture book, and it is illustrated by Haiwan Yume. And have you worked with her before? I've not. Um, I have never even met Haiwan um, only by Zoom and only recently. I think <laughs> most people think when you write a picture book, there's. I had this image of the author and the illustrator sitting at a big table together and kind of spitballing the, the ideas of the book together. That is not at all how it works. So I've only met her virtually, and I'm I'm just absolutely charmed by the illustrations that she did in this book. And each time I read it, each time I page through the book, I find more magic in the illustrations. There's, um, there's so much to discover, and it's so subtle that I think it really rewards multiple um, readings. And I love that in a picture book because as a parent, I know if there's a book that appeals to your child – you're going to know that book by heart. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the idea that there's so much more to find in it and that I find that each time I look at the book, I'm just looking at it right now while I'm talking to you. And I just noticed something that I hadn't seen before that the couch picks up on a visual theme that, that I, that is at the kitchen table as well. And I hadn't realized <laughs> that until just this second. Oh, my. Um, but, yes, yeah, she has, Katie has um, uh, her shirt that she loves, that she puts on. And um, it is, uh, it's kind of a magic shirt. I wish I had this shirt because it, it, it shows what Katie is going through on the inside. Mm. Um, so kind of like a mood very, shirt. <laughs> like a mood shirt, exactly. <laughs> oh, I love that. And I love also Hyalong's use of white space. There's a lot of white space that makes it very calm around the most of the pages. And it's calm and pretty and beautiful. But you see her hair starting, her very smooth, pretty hair starting to stand up on end <laughs> as she's having her big right. feelings. 
and her rainbow shirt starting to get stormy. And then on the page, when she can't grumble squinch her big feelings down anymore, it's just fully saturated with color. The table is gone. It's a full storm on her shirt and in her face. And then my favorite is the page turn. You turn that page from that explosion and it says, then it's quiet. And it's so much white space, and it's just Katie's face and her hands over her eyes, and she seems so ashamed and so scared, and it just breaks my heart. Do you want to read Sometimes I I Grumble Squinch for Great? Okay, here we go. All right. Sometimes I Grumble Squinch by Rachel Vale. That's me. (laughs) illustrated by Haiwan Yum. That's not me. My name is Katie Honors, and I'm a really nice kid. I always go along nicely. I'm happy to play any game when a friend comes over. Even if I lose, I am a good sport. Good game, I say, either way. I hardly frown. If there isn't mango sorbet, I say... That's okay. I like cookie dough, too. Mom smiles and says I can get sprinkles, which is extra. I didn't even ask. Katie is such a pleasure, Mom says. She really is, Dad agrees. I fit perfectly in their hugs. They are very proud of me. But there is something they don't know. Some mornings, my little brother, Chuck, crawls into my bed while I am sleeping. He breathes hot on my eyelid. A drool from his wet mouth plunks onto my arm. The first word I say in the whole day is, ew. I say it very quietly, though. I put on my beautiful new shirt. I love it. It cheers me right up. Chuck follows me down to breakfast and sits in my seat. That's my seat, Chuck, I tell him nicely. Oh, Katie, says Mom, you don't mind, do you? I do mind, but I say it's okay, and I move to Chuck's seat. Sometimes I grumble squinch. My insides tighten, and I think mean thoughts. I wish that I had a trampoline or a treehouse or a giraffe instead of a brother. (laughs) If I had one of those instead of a brother, I could sit in my own seat at breakfast. Here's your bibble bibble, Dad says to Chuck. Bibble bibble is what Chuck calls toast with butter. Chuck doesn't like cereal. Chuck only likes bibble bibble. Chuck smashes his buttery fist into my bowl of cereal. Oh, oh, Chuck, no punching Katie's cereal, silly, Mom says, putting him down on the floor. Say you're sorry to Katie. I wish I could pop him like a balloon. I wish he'd kaplume into a million bajillion bibble-bibble crumbs. I wish he would disappear. But I don't yell those wishes. I grumble-squinch them right down. Chuck 
scampers over and grabs me with his milky hands. He snuggles his buttery face against my beautiful new shirt. I am a tight, horrible squinch of grumble. Chuck loves you, Dad says. He pulls Chuck off me and carries him away, singing and smiling. You okay? Mom asks me. I nod, because I am always okay. But that nod is a lie. I am not okay. And lying about it is making me cry. And then I just can't grumble squinch my feelings down anymore. Chuck ruins everything, I yell. He's sticky and stinky and he (laughs) breathes on me and I want to sit in my own chair and everybody smiles at him. But he is a buttery baby on my shirt and I wish I could plumb him up. (laughs) Then it's quiet. I'm scared. I didn't mean it. But also, I did mean it. They won't think I'm such a pleasure anymore. I wish I could grumble squinch it all back inside. Maybe I ruined everything. I wait for mom to yell that I am bad. To say, you go to your room and think about it. To look disappointed in me. I look up at mom's face. It's really hard sometimes, mom whispers instead, even when you love somebody. I nod. This nod is true. Mom says, I know. She holds out her arms to me. She folds me up safe in there. I still fit perfectly, even though I didn't grumble squinch all my secret thoughts inside. There's room for the whole me. The end. And that was Rachel Vale reading her picture book, Sometimes I Grumble Squinch. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. So the you talked about what you thought the process of working with an illustrator would be like versus what it actually is. So in reality, mm-hmm. you don't even choose the illustrator, do you? I don't. Um, the team that at Scholastic, Orchard Books Imprint at Scholastic, which is who publishes this book, um, is really extraordinary. My agent, Liza Baker, and... Um, and her, uh, the, uh, the art director, Patty Ann, the, and the whole team there really worked to make this the best book that it possibly mm-hmm. could be. And they showed me some samples of art from a few illustrators. And to be honest, they were all really, really good. <laughs> it was a hard choice. But there was something about Kaiwan Young's art that just spoke to me that I thought was so tender and expressive and beautiful all at the same time. So I, I had a preference for her and luckily enough, she said yes. And so we worked together, but not, not at the same place, just she refined and refined the, the, the artwork on it and um, included lots of surprises in it. 
Um, I like to think that I'm an easy author to work with, partly because I really have no gift for visual arts. <laughs> I can't. E- I can't even doodle, so I don't. Oh. I don't give a lot of notes about what the art should look like. I don't. I don't say in my manuscript what should be happening on each page. I hope I come from a theater background, and I particularly study Shakespeare, and am a Shakespeare lover. And Shakespeare famously doesn't have a lot of um, stage directions mm. in in the text, and I feel like. I'm going to give you the text, and I hope that as an artist, the artist will find something in it and bring something to that. And she just brought her own artistry to this family and to this to this story and came up with this visual vocabulary that I think is quite brilliant. Do you determine which words go on each page? Sorry? Do you determine which words are on each page? Like, do you set, okay, these two sentences are on this page and this sentence is on the next page? Do oh, you yeah. Do the pa- you do yeah. the page breaks, yeah. I do, and sometimes that changes in the revision process. It's so interesting. One of the things that I was, that I learned early on in writing picture books from the great Dick Jackson, who was my first editor, is um, a picture book, unlike a novel, is um, – it really has the page turns are vital. The page turns are important, and thinking of it as not just a, a verbal, a verbally told story, but a a, um, a visual story is important. And the page turn is part of the experience. So you want to have a fully illustratable idea on each page, and you also want suspense. You want to have the reader want to meet, want to know what happens at the page turn. And the page turn is also a temporal thing. It happens in time. So there is a built-in pause while the page turns. And so that is an important thing to me in thinking about it. There's, there's an aspect of poetry to, even though mm-hmm. my picture books aren't told in rhyme, there's an aspect that's like poetry in that there's like a page, like a line break in poetry there's the page break. So figuring out when the page needs to turn and what will compel a reader to turn the page is, is an important part of the process for me. Very cool. So when you sit down to write a picture book, you know, the amount of words in a picture book, of course, is a small mm-hmm. fraction of, of even a middle, you know, even a, a children's novel. So right. people think, oh, that must be easy because it's short. <laughs> right, like poetry. <laughs> yes. So... Like a sonnet. A sonnet <laughs> is so short. <laughs> take a minute. How long could it possibly take to type 30 words? Um, yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> but how long do you take and how many revisions do you do? Well, I always say... For me, the first 50 drafts are the hardest. <laughs> After that, it tends to get easier. The, the only book I ever wrote and kept almost complete from the first time I set it down was that first one I talked to you about, um, the predecessor to Sometimes I Grumble Squinch, sometimes it, which is called Sometimes I'm Bombaloo. And that had taken me a year and a half of developing the idea of Bombaloo. So it's, it's hard for me to say how long it takes to write a picture book because I tend to walk around with a few picture books in my head at all times. 
And when I finally start, when I crack it, I feel like that's, that's a big moment when I crack it, when I figure out how to begin telling it. Um, and then it could be another hundred drafts before I get that next <laughs> cracked it, like really told it how it needs to be told. But how do you know when you've got that? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. <laughs> um, sometimes, sometimes I think I've got it and the editor disagrees. Um, but sometimes, but for me, it's when it feels real, when I feel like I have gotten to a real truth, when there's no cliche left in it, there's nothing simple. There's nothing, even though these books, I try to make them very simply told and sound very much like they're coming from the mind of a child going through this. What I'm at, what I'm after is something very complex. And I feel like writing a book that just said, like, it is important to be kind. <laughs> like, you know, why should somebody spend their valuable minutes and dollars on, on that? Like, we all know that. That's yeah. boring. Yeah. So yeah. my goal is to, to add something to the conversation and to be worthy of that, to be worthy of people's time. Um that they'll spend is this precious moment that they'll spend with a child in their lap or around a circle in a, um, in a school. Um, I, I take that responsibility really seriously. So for me, I, it's not done until I can't make it any better and I can't make it feel any more real and I can't make it any more true and that it, it touches something and catches my breath. And I say, Oh yes. I mean, with this one, I realized, so I wrote this about two years ago. It takes about two years to go through the process. And uh, about a few weeks ago, I had a hard thing happen. Um, my, uh, we have a pet tortoise, and my pet tortoise. We were visiting um, relatives, and my pet tortoise's cousins, who are huge, huge dogs, got very interested in her and picked her <sighs> up and brought her, got her out of a screen porch where we thought she was safe. Ooh. And um, picked her up and brought her out to the yard to play. And she survived that, but, um, you know, was was injured pretty badly. And I was a guest in the house. Ooh. And I was grumble squinching my feelings down because I am nice and I am pleasant. And, you know, we, we dealt with the crisis moment. And then I was trying very hard to just be my, my poor sister-in-law felt terrible. And I felt terrible for her. And it was nobody's fault. The dogs were being dogs and nobody did anything wrong. But I was having a lot of big feelings. And it wasn't, it wasn't until I could take a moment and talk, you know, cry and say all my feelings to my husband that I could really be myself again. Um, mm. And I realized oh, I'm grumble squinching my feelings. That's what's going on. And I felt like, oh, I feel like I read a book recently about this. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, oh, yes, I know what book it is. <laughs> and I realized not only had I written this book for little Rachel, me as a child, to a little message to, a me to me as a kid that it's okay. Like, even though I also, like you, I, I felt protective of my mom. I have a younger brother, and he was undiagnosed but on the spectrum, and he had 
struggles with behavior and with interacting um, socially. And my mom had a lot on her plate. My Both my parents had a lot on their plate. And I felt like, well, it's my job to be pleasant and to be easy. And, um, and that didn't come from them. That came from mm-hmm. me. Yeah. And um, so it, in a way, this book was a message to little me that it's okay. Like, they, they are happy to hear your troubles, too. And they, they truly are. They're hugely supportive and want to hear the troubles and the rage and the, the whole me. There's room for the whole me there. But so I needed to send that message to little me. But I was like, oh, wow, when I wrote this, I didn't realize I was also sending a message <laughs> to two years later me that, you know what, sometimes it's okay if you have big feelings, too. Not just if other people have big feelings, but if you have big feelings. And you can turn to your husband or your friend or your other friend or your mom or your dad or, like, all these other people who are there and really ready to be supportive and sympathetic and hear you out and hear your whole thing. And so, yeah, so that's how I know when I've done it, when it, when it feels real. Oh, you're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. And our guest today is Rachel Vale, author of Sometimes I Grumble Squinch. I'd like to, to mention that the illustrations on your, on the t-shirt on this child are fantastic mm. and see that's are i they? didn't notice that the first time through mm. and even the second time through but i didn't right. the third time through i did and that really <laughs> added to the whole thing it right. added i know deal. and the more you look the more you'll notice and you know what else i'm gonna i'm gonna just give one away that i found there's this tablecloth that i'll describe for the listeners it's yellow and white checks and it's i didn't realize until like this 40th time through this book, looking at the book, this, it's like order, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, like a grid. And then as Katie's uh-huh. emotions start getting big and she's working so hard to grumble, squinch them down, it becomes wavy. The order, even the order of the, the house, the tablecloth becomes sort of wiggly and waggly and a little bit less ordered. And then, and then the table disappears when she explodes. And then yeah. when it's quiet again, it's back. Oh. And the la- the other <laughs> thing that I noticed, the other thing, and that's on the end papers too, that yellow and white check. So I didn't notice that for a long time. And then the other thing is, Katie has that magic shirt that I, I too, I love it. Um, and then at the end, I'll just leave this as a, not not spoiled, but the, it turns out the mom's shirt is kind of magic, too. Ooh, now I have to go look at the book, which mom has. Caroline has the book. I don't have it in front of me. So now I'm now you've really got me curious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. See, that's the thing about this book. It's just there's all you know, you just have to read it several times. It's not just a one yeah. one time deal. It really, uh, yeah. really was really was great. Oh, thank you so much. So, Rachel, how many picture books have you done? Oh, that is a good question that I should have the answer at hand to, shouldn't I? Um, about, if you don't, so Mama X and T is a series of, of three chapters in each book. So I'm not going to count those. Those separate. I would say probably like 10, maybe. 
Okay. Something like that. And you've also Mm -hmm. written novels for middle schoolers. Yes. And novels for teens. Mm-hmm. And, chap- and novels for younger children. Yeah. And chapter books. books for elementary school. So total published books? I think probably about 40, maybe just over 40 books. Now, did you always know you wanted to be a children's author? No, no, I didn't know that until I was writing my second book after my first book was already published. Um, Not at all. I thought writers had to be much, much moodier and deeper than I, well, when I was little, of course, I thought writers had to be all at least old, if not dead. And since I was neither of those, um, I, I didn't think of that as a possible thing. And then as I, in high school, I thought, um, writers had to be like moody and smoke cigarettes and I didn't, I wasn't moody and I definitely wasn't interested in smoking cigarettes. So I was like, all right, well, so that's out. You must've been reading well, Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. Well, yes. And, <laughs> you know, they all seem to drink a lot. And, yes, you know, I just, yeah. I just like stories. I liked sentences. I liked reading. Um, I liked eavesdropping and I thought, okay, I wish I had a talent and I tried lots of things, but I was very, very afraid of failing at anything. I thought failure was um, just like a verdict, a final verdict on yourself. If you were cut from a team or you tried to play the saxophone as I did, and it was quite horrible, the first <laughs> honks out of my, you know, or piano. I couldn't play the piano like Mozart when I sat down. So I was like, all right, well, obviously I'm not good at anything, but I... I am good at eavesdropping, so I guess I'll be a spy. <laughs> so I told. <laughs> it seemed obvious. I was. I was not. I was not six at the time I decided this. I was seventeen and applying to college. <laughs> so. <laughs> so I applied early to Georgetown School of Foreign Service, and I got in. Thank goodness. And I was like, okay, good. That well, hold. I don't want to get rejected from anywhere and run the risk of being told I'm not good enough. So, fine, there I go. (laughs) Off I went to become a spy. And if I did become a spy, obviously I'm not going to tell you. Um, (laughs) This whole thing is a cover. Um, But I I discovered playwriting. I took, I was able to take one um, elective that wasn't like, you know, becoming a spy class. And it was playwriting. And the thing that I learned that was most important in that class was about that idea of the first 50 drafts are the hardest because the playwriting teacher, his name is Doc Murphy, he was just a brilliant teacher. His thought was not when you sit down or when you're inspired, then you sit down and you write a masterpiece if you're talented. And if that doesn't happen to you, then find a different job. His idea was the first thing you write down is obvious and a cliche well of course that's front of mind keep going that's you have to you have to purge that get rid of that and maybe by the 50th idea the 50th draft you'll have reached mediocrity which is amazing (laughs) that's great keep going because it's only when you get past that that you get to something interesting astonish me so this idea of writing became more fun and more, less high stake. It totally de-risked it because 
the stuff that you wrote today is garbage? Yeah, sure, of course, most of it. Most of what I write is garbage. Great, keep going. Mm. And that enables you to, to, to keep going and to come to something interesting, to come to something exciting. What I try to tell my kids and what I try to kind of get across in subtle ways in my books is you're going to hear no more than you hear yes. And neither no nor yes is the final verdict on you. And that idea of stumbling, the idea of not succeeding at what you're trying is part of the process. It doesn't prove that you're not good at it. It proves that you're doing it. Mm-hmm. So get, so like I tell my kids all the time, if you're really good at a thing and you're working your absolute heart out and you have a tremendous amount of luck, maybe you'll only get a hundred no's for every yes. So rack up those nose. <laughs> you got to get them out of the way. <laughs> get them. Collect them. Yep. yep. Got another no? Excellent. Keep trying. Ten more. Ten more. Ten more. Because you never get to yes otherwise. And if you're, if you're only, if you're never failing, you're not trying. Rachel, there's so much that great that you're saying, but one thing I have to comment on is I had no idea that you could go to school to learn to be a spy. I feel like I oh, really, I, I missed the boat. <laughs> <laughs> or did you? Oh, or Maybe. did I? Maybe we secretly know each other from our spy club, and we're just not telling anybody. My kids always used to say to me when I would go to school visits or on book tour or something, my kids would say, well, have fun on your book tour or at your school visit, <laughs> if that's really what you're doing, because who knows? Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> my dad actually was a spy, and he did not oh, tell really? me how to become one, because mm-hmm. he didn't tell us that he was one. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. So maybe I'm just keeping a secret. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it was a. We'll see you yeah. at the spy club meeting. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll be there. I'll be there. Right. Of course. Don't tell anybody. Of course not. How did you, um, we only have a few minutes left, but when mm. you, your first book was published, how did you find the publisher? How, what was your public, your, your uh, path to publication? Well, I, I did it all backwards and this was back before the internet and stuff. I had no idea. I had this idea that I couldn't figure out how to write as a play. I was working at a theater and I started writing my first book. Um, kind of uh, just because I couldn't figure out how to make it a play. And I quit my job at the theater and I moved home with my parents and I spent the year writing the book and only then started investigating, oh, how how do I get this published? And um, so not a recommended path. <laughs> and um, But that summer I went uh, to, I when I I spent a year writing the book and then I was revising and revising it. And I, then I sent out query letters to every agent I could find in the book. They then had a book of, um, yep, they who, did, you know, public, Writer, you know writers, market, marketplace, writers, yep. market. Yep. yep. And um, so I sent a query letter to all of those. And I finally got, I got some letters that said, send us your full manuscript. I got one that asked for that. And then I sent the manuscript and it was a, pretty harsh rejection and I 
as you now know, that's not my favorite thing. <laughs> and I thought, well, if this is going to crush me, then I should get out of this field. But I'm not going to let it crush me today. Mm. So I hung it up on my wall and I left a space next to it. And I said, someday I'm going to get an acceptance and I'm going to put it next to this. But if this is going to crush my spirit and break my heart, then I have to do something else. If I can look at this rejection in the face today, then I can keep going. So I looked at it every day and I kept going. And then that summer when I, I decided to move to Martha's Vineyard to be a nanny and work in a bookstore, because I, I wasn't sure what to do. Um, <laughs> and I met, <laughs> I met Judy Bloom. And, um, and it's a, a long story, but she was incredibly helpful. To me. I had a manuscript and I gave it to her and I said, in, you know, in absolute innocence, the idea that my book would be at Judy Bloom's house, since all of Judy Bloom's books, of course, were at my house, <laughs> it just sort of blew my mind. And she liked the book and she introduced me to her agent and her editor, the great Dick Jackson, her, her agent, the great Claire Smith. And they both liked the book after I, you know, again, revised it completely um, given her feedback from it. Mm. And so it came out, he, uh, Dick Jackson, when he, when he accepted it, I of course called Judy Bloom and, you know, she was, she was a, an incredible mentor. And even before I ever knew her, just because I loved her, the respect she showed to me as a, a reader through her, the way that she wrote was so, fundamental to the way that I write and um so I had the book in my hand uh before I turned 25 so and what was I've the never title really had an adult that was called um wonder it's not the famous wonder it was before the famous <laughs> wonder um but yeah so that was called wonder and um and that came out when I just before I turned 25 and I've been at it ever since haven't had a, a real grown-up job. <laughs> well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we're out of time, but it's been lovely talking to you today, Rachel. Yes, it's been lovely talking to you too. And how sweet that you and that the two of you do this together. I love it. I'm going to have to call my mom Aww. and tell her. I'm going to tell her. There's, I talked to this other wonderful mom and daughter who <laughs> like talking with each other so much that they've made a, a, a professional thing of it. I love it. Thank you. And mom, you have some closing words? <clears throat> yes, I do. The, actually, these are from the book. Um, the uh, One from the author's notes. Each of us has so many feelings. Not all of them are pleasant. We are all, every one of us, entitled to the full buffet of human emotions. And then from the illustrator's note, still, in the end, the warm blanket of her mom's hugs tells us that it is okay to express how we really feel. We are still loved. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. And thank you, Rachel. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.